Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Jeff Kinley is here to offer his insight on the trajectory of the approaching tribulation storm, and James Collins will have a moment of prophecy. Thank you for being here today. I'm excited to let you know that this year's SWRC Prophecy Calendar is here and ready to ship. This year's calendar is based on the book and television series, Jewish Roots of Christianity, a 16-month calendar that features all major biblical, Jewish, and Israeli holidays, plus U.S. holidays. Each day contains scripture references to help you read through the Bible in a year, and the calendar is full of gorgeous photos and artwork. And I'm excited to announce that part of the proceeds from each calendar go to the Onesimus Prison Ministry. When you order a calendar, a calendar is also sent to a prisoner. Order the 16-month Jewish Roots of Christianity calendar today, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. And remember, for every calendar you order, a calendar will be given to a prisoner free of charge. Order the brand new 16-month calendar today. Call 1-800-652-1144. We have special pricing available on bulk orders with free shipping on all orders over $100. 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Author Jeff Kinley is a contributor in the brand new book, Trajectory, Tracking the Approaching Tribulation Storm. Our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, recently visited with Jeff to discuss his thoughts on the biblical connections with cancel culture, the woke mentality, and the chaos that is all around us. Jeff Kinley is our guest. He is a contributor to the book, Trajectory. Regarding this book, Jan Markell said, If the tribulation is near, the rapture of the church is even closer. This book is a storm warning, and I agree. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Larry, thank you for having me on the show. You know, I think your chapter as a storm warning is very, very apropos. You know, I used to pastor in South Florida, and before the hurricanes came ashore, the hurricane flags were up and fluttering in the breeze. Time to take cover. Your chapter has a stormy title, Beastly Prophetic Weather Ahead. Tell us about the beastly part of your title. Yeah, well, basically the chapter is about the Antichrist and the false prophet and how we are currently right now in the process of seeing how their government, their future government, is really in the process of being formed right now. So, yeah, those flags are up. We're seeing the signs of early formation of those prophetic prophecies and revelation all around us. Well, as you point out, just as Hitler needed a Heinrich Himmler, the Antichrist needs a false prophet, a minister of propaganda. So after the rapture, what can the world expect from the Antichrist and the false prophet? And do we see signs of this in the present day, like right now? And what are some of the things that are being set up, the stage setting? Yeah, I think one of the greatest things that we're seeing right now is just the formation of a global governance system and the whole rise of globalism. Uh, Of course, we've seen that through the European Union and the World Economic Forum, and there's been major calls for a global governance system ever since COVID really came out. So I think that's in the process right now. More and more nations are open to that. We're seeing the rise of pursuance of digital currency, a digital central bank. Over 100 countries right now are pursuing 
avenues for that, including the United States, through an executive order issued by our president back in March of 2022. But those are some of the ways it's happening in the world. But what the Bible says is going to happen is that there will be a final global government in the last days, and it'll be headed by a man called Antichrist. But beside him, close beside him, will be a man that the Bible identifies as another beast or a false prophet. And that person will essentially be the promoter of the Antichrist, the political campaign and career. He's going to come alongside him, but he's also going to be in charge of helping to promote worship of him and also a one-world religion prior to that. So we're seeing these things set up, and it's almost like even tomorrow, given (laughs) the right kind of crisis, Larry, someone could step into that role. Right. There's been talk with Russia taking a beating from uh, the Ukrainians that Putin could use nuclear weapons or something like that. That would be the trigger or something of that sort or of that magnitude. Yeah, it could be something like that or it could be the rapture of the church. Right. It could certainly send the whole world into a tailspin. (laughs) That's going to create a massive void of leadership, I believe, and a perfect opportunity for someone to come in and bring a relative sense of peace and safety and calm and hey, it's going to be okay, just trust your government, trust this man. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, on the heels of that, I think he's going to sign that peace treaty with Israel that Daniel 9.27 talks about. I want you to talk to us a bit about imminence. It's very, very important. The rapture is imminent. I believe that. You believe that. All pre-tribbers believe that. So what does that mean, and why is the pre-trib rapture the only position that really acknowledges imminence? I mean, there are a lot of other views. Some of them are very new, but ultimately they deny imminence. So tell us about the pre-trib rapture and imminence and why that's really important. Yeah, that's a great question, Larry. I think one of the things that people kind of get hung up on are all the signs that Revelation mentions about the tribulation. And Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, talks about many, many signs that are visible that will lead up to his second coming. However, that's contrasted in the New Testament with the signless event Mm. of the rapture. In other words, there are no signs that lead up to the rapture, nothing we can point to and say, well, hey, it's 10 minutes away or it's 10 years away. It's a signless event, and that's the doctrine of imminence that you just mentioned. And imminence just simply means that Christ could come back at any time. And when we examine the New Testament, what's very exciting throughout all of the epistles of the New Testament, we see over and over again, this spirit of anticipation, of expectancy mm, right. that the early church had. I mean, the blessed hope in Titus 2.13, from which we await a Savior. I mean, those are the type of things in the spirit that we see in the early church. And Now, the doctrine of imminency is so critical because all the other views concerning the rapture, besides the pre-trib view, all of those have no imminency to them. Right. In other words, if you believe in a mid-trib rapture, then you simply count three and a half years from the time Antichrist signs his peace treaty, you could pretty much predict almost the day of Christ's return. The same is true for the post-trib rapture, just seven years into the tribulation. Of course, they equate the rapture with the, the second coming and kind of you know, mend those together, but any of these views are really predictable. And that's the very thing that Christ warned us against. He says, oh, you're not going to know the time of my coming. And you know, John 14, that passage, he uses the, the betrothal, wedding motif to communicate to them, just like the groom will come back at an unannounced time to snatch away the bride, Mm -hmm. so I will come at an unannounced time. So really, the pre-trib rapture is the only view that allows the church to be what the church was in the New Testament, which is to look forward to and anticipate with great expectation the coming of Jesus. 
Well, I think eminence is so important regarding evangelism, and that's especially in these last days, this desperate hour. Also, holiness. I think eminence is really a a great motivation to holiness. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I know how you feel about those things, and I think eminence is really important. I know there are just so many, some of them are really wacko ideas about the end times, that I think they're doing more harm than good, but imminence is important. So there will be a crisis of worldwide proportions that will occur after the rapture, as you point out. After the rapture, our entire planet will lose its collective mind. It will become unhinged, so to speak. The Antichrist will be the man with the plan, the man with the solution. So how will the Antichrist posture himself to fill the global leadership void? I think the thing that he's going to do is to simply do what this famous phrase that came out of one of the Democratic thought leaders is that never let a crisis go to waste. (laughs) And this is going to be the ultimate crisis that Satan will not let go to waste. And so the idea is that while the world is in chaos, somebody comes up with a plan, somebody comes up with a solution. And you think about even right now, if someone had seriously invented a vaccine that completely made you immune from the COVID virus, that person would win the Nobel Prize. They'd be able to cover every magazine in the world. Of course, that didn't happen. But the Antichrist will do that in essence. He will come in. He will bring peace. He'll bring safety. He'll bring peace to the Middle East through this peace treaty with Israel. Uh, I think he'll form an alliance of governments. He'll bring governments together that before that time had been perhaps even enemies. I think he's going to have a great sense of oratorial skills. He'll be able to be a great negotiator, a great compromiser in some ways in the beginning. But he'll be able to do what no one has ever done in human history, which is bring the whole world together, at least for a short time. I have often thought that, for example, if a UFO landed on the lawn of the White House, and these little three-foot men came out with a ray gun or something really dramatic. I think China, Russia, the United States, Taiwan, Ukraine, Namibia, wherever it is, everybody would say, hey, man, we've got a really big problem. Let's all get together. So I think that's And who knows what it could be. But even the man on the street doesn't know much about Bible prophecy, and yet he sees all this going on, wars and rumors of wars. He comes up and he says, well, doesn't the Bible say something about this? And and it's obvious that that people know, and, and people are looking. People are afraid. And I think it's a great opportunity, of course, for evangelism. But Jeff... Revelation 13.1 and 17.15 and others suggest that the Antichrist will be a Gentile. He comes out of the sea. Will some Jews regard the Antichrist as a false messiah since he's a Gentile? What, what will Israel's view of the Antichrist be? And then what about the treaty that he makes? How does that all fit together? Well, I think from a Jewish standpoint, and this is speculation, of course, but I think from a Jewish standpoint, there's going to be a sense of expediency that the Jewish nation that Israel is going to have in the days following the post-rapture. And I think that expediency is, hey, this is the opportunity perhaps we have to rebuild our temple. Antichrist is going to make this possible. Now, we'll get in bed with him, so to speak, you know, as long as he makes that possible. Of course, surrounding all this could be the, the war of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38-39, decimating the Muslim forces at that time. And so there's no Muslim opposition to the Jewish temple. Antichrist comes in. He, he brokers that peace treaty. 
And so in that sense, I think that he will be a Messiah-like figure, but not, I don't think, in the sense that they will worship him. I think their attention's really going towards the temple and worshiping God. And the Antichrist is simply a, a piece to the puzzle to get them to that point in there. Right. So I think that's going to be a great opportunity for Israel. And God's going to use that, I think. God's going to use those sacrifices and preaching of the two witnesses and 144,000 to really, I think, begin to turn their hearts toward that sacrifice that eventually Christ had made for them, and their attention is going to be turned to Christ. And I think a huge remnant, at least a third of the Jews, will be saved through a lot of that preaching. Wow. All the stuff that we're talking about today is so, so very, very important. I really believe it, and I think it's kind of unfortunate, in some cases very deadly, that people avoid prophecy. Now, I've read some of your material. I appreciate your chapter in the book, Trajectory. Some of these prophetic issues are very clear. They're rooted in the Scripture. You show the reader where they could go in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. So what do you say to those Christians who stay clear of Bible prophecy because it's too obscure and too controversial? And that's the common thing. You know, we have a lot of neo-evangelical churches. Their big verse is John 3.16, and I love John 3.16, but there's so much more in the Bible, even from the lips of Jesus. So what do you say to these people who say, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. And I believe it will, but I believe it's necessary for we to get to know some of the stuff that you're talking about. To be honest, Larry, there are a lot of mediocre Christians. There are a lot of lazy Christians in our world today. There are people that simply are not willing to give God the time that he deserves in their day and in studying his word. I would say this, is that if prophecy is in the word of God, then it certainly is worth studying, it's worth right. knowing about. That's the number one thing. Secondly, it takes up close to 30% of the Bible. 30% of anything is significant, so I think that's important. I think a third reason is because God only had one, one whole book to write. It was the Bible. And the last chapter in that book is the book of Revelation, a book that is 95% prophecy. Mm. And God could have ended his book any way he wanted to by just simply saying, hey, love one another or keep my commandments or whatever. But he ended it with a book telling us about the future. Right. Now, that is highly significant. And when you ignore that, you're essentially cherry-picking what really you want God to say to you instead of letting God say what he wants. Right. So I think that's very, very important. And I think that a lot of Christians are what uh, Charles Ryrie called eschatological agnostics. You know? <laughs> in other words, they're just kind of like, well, I don't really know what I believe. I'll just kind of stay in the middle. But I don't think God really gives us that option. You know, people try to downplay eschatology by saying, well, it's not a salvific issue. It doesn't affect your salvation. Of course, that's true. But there are a lot of things, a lot of doctrines that don't affect our salvation right. that are very, very important in our Christian lives. And so if it's in the Bible, then it certainly ought to be something important to us. So instead yeah. of being kind of on the fence or saying, well, I don't know, just acknowledge the fact that, that something is going to happen. God actually has told us what's going to happen and how it's going to happen in His Word. And so for a Christian to simply back off from that or say they're not, it's not important, I think reveals more about the Christian than it does about the, you know, the, sort of the, right. the mystical nature of the doctrine itself. Well, Jeff, the precise scheduling of the Gog-Magog war is an item of much disagreement, even between, you know, premillennialists and pre-tribbers. But Antichrist's covenant with Israel would probably precede it since this invasion occurs when Israel is living securely in the land. That's an interesting statement. 
And as you point out, this invasion could be seen as an attack on the Antichrist himself because he is in alliance with the Jewish people. So as you suggest, when God miraculously delivers Israel from the invaders, this could be used as a marketing tool by the Antichrist to advance his own agenda. Now, that's keen, brother, and I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense because we've got to see the Antichrist as an opportunist. I mean, he's no dope. He knows a lot. He's got big plans, and he doesn't like the plans that God has for the world. So this is very intriguing, and I think there's a high likelihood that what you say might happen could really happen. Yeah, I mean, I think there, you know, obviously there are many views. I don't know, there's like eight different views on on the timing of the Gog-Magog war. But to me, it just sort of makes sense. I mean, when you read there in Ezekiel 38, 8, verse 8 and 11 and 14, it talks about Israel living securely in the land. Now, some people think that Israel is living securely in the land right now with the Iron Dome and that type of thing. But thousands of rockets, you know, every year continue to, to go into Israel. So for me, it just seems to make sense that the most secure place Israel could be would be when they are not feeling threatened from any outside forces. Right. And for that to happen, it would, it would appear that this Gog-Magog war would certainly fit into that time slot right around the signing of that peace treaty. And, and again, as you said, this Antichrist figure, he's going to have a monstrous ego. He is a man on an ambition to rule the world. And so he's going to take any opportunity to take credit I think, for whatever victory that there is. And I wrote a book called Interview with the Antichrist. It's an apocalyptic fiction book, but in the book I talk about how Antichrist actually takes credit for this victory, and and the Jewish people go, no, no, God is the one who's given us the victory in this war. So I think he is going to do that. I think that it's going to allow the Jews to really rebuild their temple and to do so with a sense of peace and safety. But then, as you know, in the midpoint of the tribulation, Larry, comes the biggest double cross right. in human history, aside from Judas' kiss on Jesus' cheek mm-hmm. in the Garden of Gethsemane, when an Antichrist breaks that covenant and invades the temple himself. Well, tell us a little bit more about the second beast. He is called another beast in Revelation thirteen eleven, meaning another of the same kind, as is clearly indicated in the original Greek. So what do we know about the second beast, and what is this second beast like? Yeah, well, first of all, he he has the same agenda as Antichrist does. The Bible tells us that he is energized by the authority of Satan. So in that sense, he's the same. But he says that his main goal, ultimate end-game goal in Revelation 13, 12, is to cause those who dwell on the earth to worship the first beast. And so, again, you know, Satan is the great, as Augustine said, he's the ape of God. He always mimics what God does is that he is mimicking the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, with Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. His chief role, then, it will be to promote worship of Antichrist. I think promote his career to begin with, to promote a one-world religion to get people really tapping into that sense that they are worshipers by nature. But then there's going to come a point at the midpoint of the tribulation where the Antichrist will suffer a fatal head wound, He'll arise from the dead, whether that's real or not. Either way, doesn't matter. People are going to believe it. And he's going to use that as the greatest marketing tool of all time. He's going to try to, again, mimic the resurrection of Christ. And from there, he promotes the worship of Antichrist, eventually leading to the mark of the beast, 666, which will identify people as worshipers of the beast. And this will be a voluntary thing that people do. Obviously, those who don't do it will suffer greatly economically, I think, and physically. 
But at the same time, the whole world will be under the spell of the evil one. And as Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 say, that there's going to be a deluding influence that right. God's even going to send on people because they believe the lie of Antichrist. I think that lie is the fact that he's claiming to be God. And so when they believe that lie, it, essentially their fate is sealed, according yeah. to Revelation chapter 14. So, yeah, the second beast is going to play a strategic role in deceiving. He's going to call down fire from heaven, make signs and wonders, the same Greek words used to describe Jesus' miracles. So he's going to be very, very convincing to a populace that has already primed themselves to receive a Messiah-like figure. Jeff, thank you for your insights and really appreciate this interview. In our Resource Center today, we're featuring the book, Trajectory, Tracking the Approaching Tribulation Storm. This brand new book features Bible prophecy experts offering a vivid, in-depth picture of what's happening in the world today. Contributors include Terry James, David Reagan, Tom Horn, Thomas Hughes, Tim Moore, Gary Ritter, Jeff Kinley, Alan Franklin, a total of 18 Bible prophecy experts offering their insight and analysis. Order your copy of Trajectory today when you call 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online, swrc.com. Now here's James Collins with a moment of prophecy. I grew up in the country. One of the funny things about country people is... They often name their children multiple crazy names. You can't be country unless you have at least two or three names. Country people have names like Billy Ray or Bobby Joe or Billy Bob or Elvis Ray or Cletus Bocephus or my cousin, whose name was Jimmy Joe Jeff Johnny Paul Ray Elmer Jr., but that was a mouthful, so we just called him Bubba. You know, I think the craziest name I ever heard was Wow. Many years ago, a couple lived not far from where I grew up. They were in their 60s. They thought they were past the age to have children. They were at an age where they were looking forward to grandchildren. Unexpectedly and miraculously, Grandma conceived, and she had another son 20 years after she had her last one. The birth was such a miracle that she named her little boy Wow, W-O-W, Wow. That was his name. You could spell it backwards, Wow. He grew up as Wow. Wow hated his name with all his heart. However, out of respect for his mother, he never changed it. He was always known as Wow. Everywhere he went, people said, Here comes Wow. Wow got married. He had a family. He lived a long life. On his deathbed... Wow called for his wife. He said, Honey, I've never shared this with you, but I absolutely hate my name. I've always hated the name Wow. I don't want people coming to my graveside and looking at the tombstone and saying, Wow. So here's what I want you to do. On my tombstone, put the date of my birth, the date of my death, and write any inscription that you want to, but don't put my name. Well, Wow died and his wife honored his last wish. She had his tombstone inscribed with the date of his birth, the date of his death, and toward the bottom of the tombstone, she had the following inscription. This is what the tombstone said. He worshiped the ground his wife walked on. He was a devoted husband, 
He opened every door. He pulled out every chair. He ironed all of his own clothes. He never looked at another woman for 50 years. He did everything his wife told him to do. You know, when people came to the graveside and looked at that tombstone, all they could say was, wow. You see, wow had a name that could not be forgotten. However, there is one name that will never, ever, ever be forgotten. It's not the name of a hero or a historian. It's not the name of a soldier or a scholar. It's not the name of an actor, author, or athlete. It's not the name of a politician or president. There is one name that when the dust settles that will be spoken and shouted. There's one name that will be worded and worshipped. His name is Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.9 we read, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. The word above means more than. It comes from a Greek word that means incomparable. There is one name that cannot be compared to any other name. It is greater than Gandhi. It is mightier than Mohammed. It is more exciting than Elvis. It's more overwhelming than Oprah. The Bible says there is one name that cannot be compared to any other name. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow all the things of heaven and the things in earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bible prophecy clearly indicates that every man, every woman, and every child that has ever lived will one day confess the greatest name of all. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, God has given the Lord Jesus Christ a name which is above all names. If you don't know him, you can call out his name in prayer today. You might pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and that I need your forgiveness. I want to turn away from my sins. I now invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you as Savior and follow you as Lord in the fellowship of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me today, I encourage you to find a Bible-believing church, and I encourage you to plug yourself into that church, and I encourage you to start growing in Jesus Christ. Your life will never be the same as you follow the name above all names. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In our resource center today, we are featuring Terry James's book, Trajectory, Tracking the Approaching Tribulation Storm. This book features 18 Bible prophecy experts offering an in-depth picture of what is happening in the world today. Order your copy of Trajectory today when you call 1-800-652-1144 or order online swrc.com. Cryptids are animals that cryptozoologists believe may exist somewhere in the wild, but are not believed to exist by mainstream science. 
are these creatures mentioned in the Bible? Pastor Michael Hoggard explores the secrets of cryptid creatures on tomorrow's Watchmen on the Wall. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.